Welcome to episode 46 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm coming to you, uh, well, kind of soaked. Um, I, I probably smell like a, uh, not so much a brewery, but maybe like a, a Mexican brewery. Um, I've been uh, pushing myself a little harder than usual in the uh, workout department here, and uh, I'm suffering a very, very sore shoulder. And uh, I am married into a uh, Mexican family. And uh, so before I go to actually go to an actual, you know, doctor, um, there's this thing called mezcal, which is uh, alcohol fermented from agave, I believe, that uh, is said to have uh, healing properties if you rub it on uh, sore muscles. So, yeah, so that's what I did. And uh, that stuff is warm. It's really, really like it's like hot to the touch. It's very, very strange and uh, couldn't resist. So I did take... A single sip of it to see what it was and I swear it was like liquefied acid reflux <laughs> it was some of the most heinous stuff I've ever put into my mouth before so uh, and and worst of all it really didn't do anything to uh to my you know faculties it didn't make me feel it didn't take the edge off is what I'm trying to say but uh yeah so I have this stuff soaking into my right bicep and shoulder at the moment we'll see Maybe I'll, I'll I'll keep you guys up to date on how this works out for me. But uh, with all that out of the way, let's get into today's book here. We are discussing New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 6. Now, this had a March 2020 cover date. And the story... Now, the story title might have been better for uh, Issue 4 because it's called Not As Hoped. And uh, I remember when we started this uh, little trip to the farm. Yeah, that wasn't what I hoped for, so... We'll see if it still uh, if it still fits for this sixth issue. Written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Biso white Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale January 29th, 2020. Now, let's open with our roll call to remind us, uh, you know, which New Mutants arc we'll be talking uh, talking about today. Uh, we've got Armor, Boom Boom, Glob, Maxime, Manon, Beak, and Angel. Then our double-page spread of creds. And in we go. Drunken Boom Boom has just arrived at the farm, and picking up from where we left off a couple issues back, has just blown up one of the cartel's trucks. She then aloofly turns to Armor and asks, you know, what, what's the haps? Before she can get an answer, however, the Gartellis fire a power-dampening rocket in her direction. Armor tackles Boom Boom out of the line of fire just in the nick of time, but it seems like seems like that power-dampening rocket was still, you know, in range. 
On the ground, Hisako tries to fill Tabitha in on just as much as she can, you know, the cartel, the power dampening, Beak, his family, and the rest of the team being held hostage in the basement, and also there were how there were some shots fired inside the house when we closed out last chapter. Speaking of inside the house, let's go head into that basement and catch up with our hostage friends here. Now, our man Glob Herman is freaking out that Maxime and Manon had those uh, two cartellis kill each other rather than, you know, maybe just manipulating their minds and convincing the bad guys to, you know, maybe just let them go. Maxime and Manon don't really see what the difference is since it got the job done either way. Glob clarifies by explaining how the rest of the cartellis heard those shots get fired and will very likely be interested in seeing just what went down. No sooner does he say this than one of the baddies pops his head into the basement to, you know, check things out. Glob disarms him and chokes him out. From here, Beak heads upstairs to check on his folks. As soon as he reaches the top of the stairs, however, he is brutally shot in the chest. I mean, there was a lot of blood in this scene. Outside, our boss bad guy, Tumalo, is directing traffic. He sends a couple of grunts out to fight Boom Boom and Armor, while he is going to head back inside the house to check on the rest of his men. Inside, the young mutants have made their way back to the ground level from the basement, and we see Angel hacking some of that strange puke onto one of the cartellis. Maxime and Manon are taking Glob's suggestion and causing another one of the bad guys to think that, you know, they're all friends. They even convince him to protect them. And so, when Tumalo enters the living room, this blonde cartel member, who Maxime and Mammon have been digging around in his head, he starts shooting at him. Which is a good and a bad thing, as we're about to find out, because in order to evade the gunfire, Tumalo runs up the stairs. And we remember who's up there, right? That's, uh, you know, Beak's folks. Back outside, Boom Boom and Armor beat up a pair of cartellis, with Tabitha being especially no-nonsense. Then, the rest of the mutants rush out of the house, globs carrying Beak's limp body. Armor asks Boom Boom how she got here, hopeful that maybe there's a Blackbird jet stashed away somewhere nearby. But here's the thing, she didn't fly. In fact, she took a Marvel Universe approximation of an Uber or Lyft to get there from the uh, Krakoan portal. Now this pretty much means they're out of luck as far as getting Beak to a uh, local medical facility anytime soon. That is, unless they take the other cartel rig, you know, the one that wasn't blown up. And so they load on in. Before they can pull away, however, another shot rings out. Boom Boom, Armor, and Glob rush back toward the house, instructing Angel to drive to the hospital and not look back. At the house, Tumalo kicks the door off the hinges and he's holding his gun to Beak's father's head. That gunshot from a moment ago was where Tumalo killed Beak's mom. Tumalo tells them nobody better leave the farm in his truck or else he's going to blow this old man's brains out. So then Angel rushes the porch and points out how this is, you know, a lose-lose situation. If they stay, Beak's gonna die. If they go, Mr. Bohusk dies. So someone's gonna die either way. Angel starts crying, stating that they came to the farm so they could be left alone. She then tells Tumalo that his cartel, they win. You know, she and her family will leave Nebraska and they'll move to Krakoa. They'll never have to see him again. She also informs him that uh, he's not leaving this farm alive, so there's that. Unfortunately, this doesn't really seem to bother old Tumalo. It's almost as though he wasn't expecting to leave in the first place. He explains that he's part of the Bohem Cartel, and that there will be more of his ilk to trouble the mutants going forward. He then pulls the trigger and blows Mr. Bohusk's, Bohusk's brains out. He continues explaining that they'll never be free from the cartel, especially if all those members sent to the farm today wind up dead. He then presses his pistol into his own dome 
and pulls the trigger. Okay, so he's gone. They're both gone. We jump here to an info page talking about the Bohem Cartel. Now, they're based out of Bohem Costa Perdida and have a net worth of $15 billion. We get a hierarchy of names here, which will mean very little to us at, the, at this point, but for completionist's sake, let's read them out anyway. The head of the Bohem Cartel is Ezekiel El Rey Dengra. He's got two lieutenants. They're Miguel El Rojo Martinez and Julian El Amarillo Perez. Now, El Rojo has, a, has three officers, and they include, and I'm going to you know, try to say these names as best as possible, Oscar El Pupura Romero, Alexis El Naranja Gutierrez, Juan El Verde Montes. And then El Amarillo, <laughs> this is much more difficult than I thought. It's a lot easier just to write them. El Amarillo's officers include Orlando El Sarcofagio Espiga, Rodrigo El Muerte de Ruiz, and poor dead Tumalo, whose real name is unknown. So it's quite a colorful group, isn't it? Pun partially intended. Uh, it's said here that there are 40,000 members of the Bohem Cartel, you know, just creeping around the world. So these guys might pose a threat. Jumping back to comics, Angel rushes back to the pickup truck and drives Beak toward a local medical facility. The rest of our mutants are just left standing among the wreckage. This news is quickly picked up and reported on by our new favorite news source, Docs, D-O-X. The headline reads, Nebraska Nightmare, Four Dead in Mutant-Infested County, which sounds about as biased and baity as uh, most real-world news. It's worth noting that this little article reminded me that Beak and Angel were part of that weird makeshift post-House of M, post-Civil War team of new, mut new warriors, actually which was mostly comprised of depowered young mutants wearing costumes that granted them different powers. Which was a really cool idea, but kind of executed poorly. Uh, also worth noting, the DOX or DOCS article cites a correspondent going by the screen name Sapien Superior 24-7, which uh, might tell us a thing or two about DOCS's sources. It doesn't help that SS 24-7's only, is only sharing information that paints the mutants as attacking the farm rather than being the victims of a cartel hit. Now we get back to comics and we jump back to Krakoa and the Healing Gardens, where Beak is recovering from his injuries. He's happy to see Armor and he thanks her for saving him. He also comments how happy he is that nobody else was hurt, which, you know, baffles our POV character just a little bit. Glob goes to bring up Beak's parents, to which Beak is a bit confused. You know, since they both died peacefully in their sleep many years ago. Ruh-roh. Before Glob can correct him, Armor pulls him outside. It looks like they're going to have to confront and confer with a pair of creepy little gray-skinned, black-eyed children. And so they do. Quickly, Maxime and Manon cop to the accusation that they did alter Beast and his family's memories in order to make them think that they were just victims of an attempted break-in and that the Bohusk elders were long dead. Armor goes to flip out, and she tells them that, you know, they can't be doing this kind of stuff. The kids, you know, they figure, okay, well, we'll just, uh, we'll give them their memories back, you know? She, they offer to give the Bohusk's memories right back to them, but Armor kind of throws her hands in the air and gives up. She says, you know, what's done is done, and decides they'll just let Beak and his family go on believing that this was actually a far better day than it actually was. And that is where we leave it. Now, next episode, we uh, begin our countdown to the landmark 50th episode of X-Lapsed, and that'll begin with X-Men plus Fantastic Four number one. But before we get there, let's, let's talk about what we just read. 
Well, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I actually like this quite a lot. After, you know, not having all that much use for the first two parts of the story, I actually, like, really appreciated how it how it all wrapped up. Um, maybe it's just the fact that it felt like an actual wrap-up, which is something we're just not getting from the other Dawn of X stories that are closing out their arcs. Um, I mean, did Excalibur wrap anything up? Sorta? Maybe? Kinda? Did Fallen Angels? Pfft, no. Uh, this three-issue bit actually feels like its own episode, you know? And as disinterested as I was in it, I'm happy about that. I really think they didn't do themselves any favors intermingling the two very different, in every way possible, opening arcs for this title. Had they dropped this farm story in after we wrapped up the Shi'ar arc, I probably wouldn't have had anywhere near the knee-jerk reaction to it as I did. So what do we got here? Now, we're introduced to the concept that this cartel is a whole lot bigger than just a few trucks full of goons with the promise that they'll be revisited at some point down the line. We also get Maxine and Manon being wildly creepy, and uh, sort of following their own moral compasses. See, they're trying to do right, but maybe not quite understanding the responsibility that comes with their powers. I'm looking forward to seeing this, you know, explored further as we continue learning more about them. At the end of this issue, Glob and Armor wonder what Xavier might think of how the twins, well, I think they're twins, used their powers to make the Bohusk brood forget about their troubles. I mean, you gotta assume that Xavier probably already knows, so I wonder if this will ever come back up. Uh, Boom Boom's drunkenness was mentioned, but downplayed from the last issue. I'm not even sure we saw her with a bottle in this issue, whereas she was never without one last time out. Uh, the murders of the Bohusk elders were pretty brutal. As was Tumalo taking his own life. Um, if we stop and think about it here, you know, I'm going to go back to the old chestnut here of talking about the stakes, right? This really ups the stakes here in that, I mean, we have a higher-ranking cartel officer who is willing to take himself off the board for the benefit of his group. So the mutants have an enemy that values their own lives even less than the X-Men do. I mean, the X-Men, the mutants can be resurrected, so their lives... Don't quite meet as much. Cartellis cannot. So, yeah, I'd say that this makes this group a scary and formidable group of foes for uh, for the X-Men. Seeing Beak get shot in the chest was a shock at first. Um, I assumed he was just going to die and be resurrected. Then again, since he wasn't living on Krakoa, I wonder how recent a backup of his is currently in Cerebro. And that is, of course, assuming that there's any backup of him at all since he never checked in. I'm glad he was able to survive, though, and that these mutants still value things like life and modern medicine, rather than just taking the easier way out, letting him die, only to pop out of an egg a handful of pages later. So it kind of zigged where I was expecting it to zag, and I was happier for that. Uh, I'm also really digging the idea of this Doc's website news magazine thing. I'm looking forward to seeing more from them. I know I've seen the logo, the DOX logo, on the cover of a later issue of New Mutants, so I'm assuming that they'll be looming in this title for at least a little while. Uh, having Docs as a wildly biased piece of business, uh, gotta almost assume it's a commentary on the current state of the mainstream media in the United States, though I could be wrong. I was happy to be reminded of that weird New Warriors volume that featured the post-decimation depowered mutants for a couple of reasons. Um, first, I'd kind of forgotten it was a thing. <laughs> you know, despite when it came out, I counted it as an X-Book since, you know, 
It had Beak, it had Angel, it had Jubilee, it had Chamber. It had, you know, so many young mutants that I that I enjoy, or former mutants at the time. So uh, I counted it as an X-book. And here I am, all these years later, almost forgetting that it happened to begin with. And also, another reason I liked it is that it told me that another little bit of X-Men history actually happened. Not that I'm too scared of having things removed from continuity at this point, but it's always nice to get a little reassurance, right? Overall... This issue ended the farm-slash-cartel arc probably the best way it could. It felt like we got an ending here, and in a minute way, it altered the status quo. You know, we started this arc with Krakoa, and now we've got Krakoa plus the Bohusks. So, <laughs> we did change something. Net positive, uh, not not bad at all. Um, uh, those The first two issues of this, not great. This one... Maybe not the best thing in the world, but a lot better. And I wonder, I really think they did themselves a disservice by intermingling it with the Shi'ar arc that is in many ways more interesting to me. And, uh, and I mean, that the Rod Reese art there is just, it's, it's almost incomparable. So this feels lesser than, unfortunately. And I, I think this would have benefited by being its own thing or an arc following the Shi'ar arc. But... It is what it is, and it's uh, it's over. So uh, next time we'll be going back to the Shi'ar space here, but that'll be that'll probably be you know, a little ways down the line since we are doing X-Men Fantastic Four, and uh, we're going to be getting some giant-sized stuff coming in. So we'll just play it by ear, and we'll, we'll get there when we get there. But uh, rest assured, it is coming. Now, before I let you guys go, let's uh, do a little bit of digging in the mailbag here. We have a letter from Damien talking about Marauders number 6. He says, I'll start with the feedback on my feedback. And this is uh, referring to a mention of, uh, I believe Jason wrote in to discuss um, Excalibur dealing with the Queen. And, uh, and Damien had taken issue with that in his uh, prior feedback. And he says, uh, I'll start with the feedback on my feedback and state that my position on the Queen of Excalibur was less a problem with the story and more an automatic allergic reaction that I can't control. I live in London. It's my home. It's not a fantasy place. I can't help but flinch when I see that nonsense on the page, no matter how well it fits the story. And I can totally appreciate that. And I can also, in a very small way, sort of relate to that. I mean, I don't know how obvious it is, but I, I grew up in New York, New York City, and... Um, I hear a lot of tall tales and anecdotes about the place from folks who've never been there. And uh, there's definitely a stereotype for a New Yorker, and I suppose in some ways I fit it. Uh, that said, some folks out here in the Phoenix area automatically assume that I'm going to be rude and nasty just hearing my voice. And I, I, I may very well be rude and or nasty at times, but I assure you that it likely has nothing to do with where I come from. But uh, I can totally understand. Uh, your point is well taken. That uh, I think we, I, I think things are like distilled down to their very basic elements when we think about places around the world and places that we're that all we know are from pop culture, right? Um, I think a lot of people see London, people see you know Tokyo, people see New York, and uh, though they've never been there. They distill it down to its uh, most basic pop culture references, and uh, like if I'm picturing, if I'm picturing, you know, the UK or something, it's like I'm seeing the you know the stereotypical you know Bobby and uh, the red, you know, the red phone booths. <laughs> That's it. Um, 
But then again, I've never been there. I don't know enough about it to to really say anything more eloquent about it. Um, a lot of folks in New York just see, you know, hot dog stands and and rude people spitting on the sidewalk. And sure, while there are some of those out there, it's not all of it. It's not. It's I'd, I'd wager it's you know probably not even a huge part of it. But uh, no, I totally understand uh, where you're coming from there. Um, Damien continues, I want to thank Al for questioning my reaction to Storm as cult leader as it made me go and reread the Greg Pak Storm series, which I loved. On a reread, it does seem like Storm rejecting godhood is more in my head than on the page, so Al might be right. Not that I'm ever wrong. <laughs> and I guess that settles it. <laughs> uh, I've never read the Greg Pak Storm. I think I have the first handful of issues um, of it. And I think that came at a time where there was just a glut of uh, of solo X-Men books coming out. And I, I just, I couldn't do it. There was just too damn many. And uh, Storm, if I'm remembering right, she was coming across as a very, very unpleasant character in all the books she was in. That I, I suppose other than the, the solo. But I, I think it was... Uh, was it Chris Yost, I think, was writing one of the X-Books at the time, and his storm just totally turned me off the character. She was just awful, and uh, I didn't want any more of her, so I didn't read the Greg Pak stuff. Like I said, I think I still have a few of them, because I, I am an idiot, and I still buy everything, but I don't think I've ever read it. Uh, Damien continues, On to Marauders number six. I love this story. The best thing continues to be the fact that it's a great single issue, but it builds on the previous issues and builds to the next. Of all the X-Books, it feels the most like the X-Men of my youth, where every issue stood alone. Every character feels true. From Kitty to the most minor villains, they all feel right, and they don't. And when they don't, there's an in-story reason. I don't want to spoil anything, but I can confidently state that this book gets even better over the next six issues. You talk a lot about evergreen stories, and I can really see Marauders being added to the list of classic X-Books in years to come. And I hope you're right about that. I really do hope you're right about that. Uh, I feel like these days in comics, um, especially DC Comics, uh, we're getting these sort of like boutique runs. You know, they come with the nicer covers, and and it's uh, it's like an, a more obscure character usually. And... They're usually written by Tom King because, for whatever reason, folks like reading monthly comics that could be summed up by saying, this month, the title character tilted his head to the left. And that's it. Um, that said, I could see Marauders being in contention as being a standout boutique run. Only, unlike the King books, one actually worth owning and reading. But uh, I, I could definitely see that. I think Marauders um, is a very dark horse run uh, uh, in the uh, in the Dawn of X you know, list of books here. It was one I wasn't going to buy. It was one that I, I just didn't think it was going to be necessary. And when I saw it on the stand, it's like my completionist nature got me. And of course, you know, X-Men Volume 5, Number 1, came with that wonderful checklist in the back, which means Chris has to get all of them. So uh, I was going to leave it behind, and uh, and then I bought it, and I, I read it, and I expected not to care for it one bit, and turned out being just about the best there is out there right now. So I, I think uh, I think this is going to have lasting power for sure. And, and the fact that it really, it's so tonally different than, uh, than everything happening on Krakoa, it, it, it can sort of stand on its own. You know, of course, you'd have to know, 
you'd have to be familiar with the status quo, but it, it I think it can shoulder being read on its own. So that that's a cool thing too. Uh, Damien continues. I love it so much. It's not so much the actual content as the style. I wish everyone would pace comics like this. I literally believe that this series gives the blueprint of how to save monthly superhero comics. I hope people notice. It's got the Tumblr ability that you sometimes decry whilst having enough content to actually satisfy readers. Or to satisfy actual readers. And the use of X-Men history is integrated naturally. And, yeah, there's a lot of love and a lot to love in Marauders. Um, and in many ways that, you know, we've already discussed, it's a book after my own heart. I really hope people are noticing and following as well. And uh, this inspired me to head over to our friends at Comicron to uh, check out the sales figures. Because uh, I hadn't done that yet. And I, it's been so long since I've actually looked at sales figures that uh, I don't know what's good and bad anymore. You know, um... Back when I was doing more contemporary DC stuff, um, it, it seemed like there was an unwritten rule that you couldn't get below a certain point without being canceled. And then they kept lowering that point. <laughs> and they kept lowering that point, and they kept lowering that point, to where uh, when I was looking at young animal books, there were some that were selling in the four digits. I mean, under 10,000 copies, which is unreal <laughs> to me. But... uh but no, I'm, I'm enjoying actually taking a look at these sales figures and familiarizing myself with what the industry and what the market actually looks like again because I'd, I'd taken quite a break from doing so. So while we're talking about Marauders here, let's see how many people are following along. Now, the first issue in its first month sold 86,830 copies, which really good numbers, just like Fallen Angels, which we discussed last episode. Marauders number two sold 51,241 copies, so not that bad a drop. Usually, we can expect like a 50% attrition from issue one to issue two, which we did see with Fallen Angels, and here it's not quite that bad. Um, Marauders number three only dropped less than 2,000 copies to 49,309. Uh, Marauders number four dropped a little bit more to 45,641 copies. And then 5 dropped to 44,802 copies, and 6 sold 44,212 copies. So from 1 to 6, and these are all first-month sales, because there are some residual sales that you'll see in subsequent months, but we're not going to worry about those here because those just muddy the numbers a bit. Um, if we look at just these strictly first-month order numbers, uh, Marauders has held on to 51% of its readership. That's not bad. That's not bad because usually... Between 1 and 2, they only hold on to 51%. But here we have 1 through 6, and there's still over half the people who you know, who curiously bought the first issue stuck around to, uh, to see uh, the what would naturally or usually be the end of its first arc, given a Marvel, uh, the Marvel method. But that's not bad. And still, as of the sixth issue, is in the top 30 of comics sold, which isn't bad. Especially when you look at the top 10 and top 20 and see that it's full of gimmick books and tie-ins and books being renumbered and books being relaunched. And yeah, I think that's not bad. Uh, you know, uh, a, I don't want to call it a second or third tier X book because it's head and shoulders above them in quality. But when you think of X books, Marauders, as a casual fan, Marauders is probably not the book that jumps to mind. So to have that selling as decently as it is that's not a bad thing at all. 
And yes, uh, there there certainly is a bit of Tumblr ability in this series. And uh, when I when I covered issue six, I almost mentioned Iceman making a big deal about being a judge on Drag Race, as a bit pandery. But and I'm and I'm not going to say I have a ton of gay friends because to say so would be pandery and it would be untrue. But the few that I do have, they all really enjoy Drag Race. So uh, I guess I can't say it's pandery if it's you know true at least in out of through my prism, right? Damien wraps up with, can you tell I like it? And uh, yes, I can. And uh, hopefully folks can tell that I also like it. So thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts, Damien. Thanks for being a good sport about the feedback to your feedback. Um, If anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, it's easy to do so. You could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could also find the show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's a Facebook group that, uh, I don't even know if it's still a thing, but it's 90s X-Men. There's that. Um, and the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I was uh, getting ready to make a fairly, I guess, not, not, not too large an announcement since this is just me, but a, a decent-sized announcement uh, with the 50th episode about some, uh, some directions, but uh, decided maybe not, maybe not yet. So uh, we're going to hold off on that. For now, but uh, after this episode, we are going to be moving into uh, the X Men Fantastic Four miniseries, which will get us all the way to the landmark, milestone, double sized, foil embossed 50th episode of X Lab. So I hope folks are digging it. Hope folks stick around for that. Uh, but I guess that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just uh, one big thank you to everyone for hanging out and sharing your time with me. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh